Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. When the annual John McGahern Seminar transitioned to the Iron Mountain Festival in Carrick-on-Shannon, the literary aspects broadened into cultural heritage, identity, environment, and the ways in which place is experienced. And I was instantly drawn to this year's theme of creative blooming in Leitrim, an inspired pairing of imagination with native place, sensibility and surroundings that took me back to being a teenager in this part of the country in the mid-1970s and to happily looking across the Leitrim countryside, veiled in tranquil blue autumnal haze, while I took a paperback book with me to read outdoors. For my escape from the house where my family lived, I wore a frayed-at-the-brim straw sun hat, a white shirt with the sleeves rolled up, outworn canvas sneakers, and lightweight cargo pants, no longer white after the summer's hay saving. In my bohemian country boy get-up, I left the house unseen and walked the length of the meadows to search out a private sun trap. Settled in my sanctuary amongst blooming oxeye daisy, foxglove, clumps of pink and white clover and tendrils of climbing blue vetch, I opened my book and was soon absorbed in the sensuous details of flesh and flowers, connubial couplings, busy loins, and exalted unions in the work of D. H. Lawrence. David Herbert Lawrence had died in 1930, three decades before I was born in 1960, the son of a near-illiterate coal miner, from a terraced house in the British Midlands, Lawrence had cultivated within himself a countryman's knowledge and love of nature. I'd grown up in a semi-industrialised coal mining valley, but was reared amongst animals and agricultural crops on a mountain farm. Lawrence died prematurely of tuberculosis, while I experienced asthma attacks so incapacitating in my younger years, I barely made it through childhood. So, while many bookish younger people of my generation all went through a phase of loving the work of D.H. Lawrence, I felt a particular closeness to the writer. Yes, I read Lawrence for the flowery eroticism of Lady Chatterley's lover, but I read him too for the fervour and accuracy with which he wrote about real life and the natural world. The swoon of yellow pollen-loaded white lilies at a moonlit garden gate, the doom-laden scent of chrysanthemums, his keen, tender and celebratory sensitivity to every living thing. To start with, though, it was through television I discovered Lawrence, the self proclaimed priest of love. We lived close enough to Inniskillen to pick up a signal for Ulster television, and curiosity had drawn me to that long-running middle-brow arts programme, The South Bank Show, presented on Sunday nights by a smiley Melvin Bragg, 
who appeared to have a very special fondness for the maverick British filmmaker Ken Russell. That's how I got to know about Russell's beguiling feature film, adaptation of Lawrence's Women in Love, the one where its female protagonist dances through a herd of cows, hairier and hornier than the cattle on our farm, while an equally hairy and horny Oliver Reed wrestles with his schoolteacher pal in the nude on a rug in front of a crackling open fire. The homoeroticism of that memorable scene was entirely lost on me at the time, I confess, but not the exuberance of bodily entanglements and Lawrence's pleas to trust your solar plexus as the true force behind a hot-blooded, physical and vibrant imaginative life. Sequestered in my patch of long, sweet vernal and ryegrass that had escaped the mowing machine, the hare's quarter, I sat holding my book with both bare arms, still hot with sunburn from working the whole summer in these hayfields, fields from which the haycocks had been so recently lifted and gathered into reeks and pikes that the ground was blotched with the faded yellow grass circles of the tracks where the haycocks stood. Lawrence died aged 44, which means that I have now surpassed his lifespan by almost 20 years. I am an older man, looking back at my younger self and the imaginative blooming I felt reading D.H. Lawrence in the airy freedom of a mountain meadow. As the shadows began to lengthen and the honeysuckle liberate its intense evening fragrance, I left my natural sanctuary, and walked the evening fields home, passing between the high Laurentian haystacks in our barnyard, and then replacing the dog-eared paperback on its shelf. I was confronted with questions and puzzled looks from my family as to what I could possibly have been doing my entire live-long This summer, I asked my French in-laws about a strange place name in Upper Languedoc, Usclats. They said it had something to do with water. I immediately thought it might be Gaulish, connected to the Irish Ishka, but it's probably from Occitan, but it set me wondering why so little of the Gauls and their language remained. Occitania, where I live, was once part of Gallia Narbonensis, the first Roman province north of the Alps. The Gauls, a large group of Celtic peoples covering much of Western Europe during the Iron Age, were part of the language family that includes Irish. Long before Caesar, Romans and Greeks traded wine for Gallic metal, salt, fabrics and slaves, 
dubbing their territories Hairy Gaul and Trousered Gaul. <laughs> French school books once referred to them as our Gallic ancestors, a phrase long abandoned. Many of us retain images from Asterix and Obelix, cartoons by Uderzo and Goscinny, who based them on 1960s archaeology of Gauls with long moustaches, druids, and magic potions. Current research finds them much more complex and sophisticated. I learned they had razors for shaving cheeks and beards, leaving only the moustache. Romans were everywhere in my Irish school books, in Latin, religious and Roman history, Shakespeare plays. In Caesar's Gallic Wars, I taped blank flaps over the English translations inscribing each with the pious Latin abbreviation AMDG. Nobody mentioned that they referred to a large swathe of Western Europe or that the Gauls were linguistic cousins of the Irish. Caesar wrote his history to impress Rome. He needed Gaul to be huge, not just a mosaic of loosely federated tribes with no interest in becoming an empire. He probably inflated the numbers of vanquished Gauls compiled from tribal lists he says he found, which would be a strange move for a people without an alphabet of their own. The victors write history. Romanization disguised the richness of Gallic remains, only now being recovered. Romans and Gauls worshipped at the same shrines. Caesar named the Roman gods, and the Gaulish ones disappeared. It is said the Romans didn't become Gallic, Gauls became Roman. One might talk of synthesis. Some Gaulish words survived, from trade to agriculture to iron-making, carpentry, and the names of umpteen towns like Paris, Lyon, Carcassonne. The French for plough sock, sock de charrue, comes from the Gaulish sucos, a pig's snout, for which the Old Irish is also sock. Before the Romans, Gallic farmers generally left the coastal arc of shifting sandbars and lagoons to traders from Phoenicia, Etruria, and Greece. One place they all might have met was Latara, an old port near Montpellier. Pliny the Elder describes Latara fishermen, they may have been Gauls, he doesn't say, calling dolphins to help them trap mullet heading out to sea. The dolphins arrive, block the mullet, eat some, then hang around to get their real reward, bread dipped in wine. Latara's archaeological museum has a copy of a neat Gaulish home. A display of pointy-bottomed amphorae has one that is flat-bottomed, the Gallic one. Practical people, they also invented the barrel, the French for which is tonneau, which seems related to Old Irish ton, meaning skin, an earlier method of carrying liquids. In the same museum, at last case contains samples of Gallo-Greek letters scratched on pieces of ceramic by someone learning to write. In Nîmes, one hot, windy August day, I was still on the look for Gauls. The origin of Nîmes is Nemausus, the sacred spring and god of a Gaulish tribe that accepted Romans without resistance. There's a connection between the root of the name and the Irish word Nyav. Here too were the Romans. Barriers in front of the Roman amphitheater awaited crowds for a gladiator fight. I discovered that vomitorium is not what we thought it was. It's rather a crowd exit. Imperial crimson banners against gray stone reminded me how Hollywood epics also fed us the Romans. In French public discourse, however, mention of Gauls can be complicated. 
they can still represent something uncouth, barbarian. President Macron caused minor ructions some years ago when he criticized the French as Gaulois refractaire. Refractaire is a catch-all word conveying resistant, intractable, recalcitrant, ungovernable, indomitable. An earlier description by President Mitterrand was all-inclusive. We're French, our ancestors Gauls, slightly Roman, slightly Germanic, slightly Jewish, slightly Italian, slightly Spanish, ever more Portuguese, maybe Polish, and I'm wondering if we aren't already slightly Arab. Still on the trail of Gauls one evening in Ambrosum, we studied the deep ruts worn by carts in the stones of the Domitian Way, the Roman road stretching from Italy to Spain. The Romans got a reputation for building roads, but it appears that they followed old Gallic routes, adding paving and way stations. In Ambrosum, the Roman bridge was originally a mighty 11 arches wide. One arch remains abandoned in the river. It will serve as background for a sound and light show later. First, there's a jazz concert and a giant picnic. We drink Roman-style wine from earthenware bottles containing spices and herbs the Romans once added to disguise a rough taste. Romans water their wine too, considering Gauls primitive because they didn't. Like them, we drink ours without Ishka. Neither Gaul nor Gael can live on Ishka alone. It isn't half bad. Kurdish blood, Irish heart. I love coming back to Leitrim from Tala. I love the crack, the ease with people, a few pints, and the latest news of the local GA games. This is my second home, and was my first home in Ireland when I was 11, when my family moved here from Iraq. That was in the summer of 2002. There's a photo of me at the top of a red and blue slide in a park here in Carrick that July. I remember the red jumper I was wearing. The sky was blue and I was happy. We had made a long journey. We were safe and we had a chance for a new life. 21 years later, and I now have the keys of my own door. I have an old BMW. I have great friends and a life I love. I have played hurling in Crow Park. I coach youngsters who play for Thomas David GA Club in Tala and might yet to play for Dublin. I'm Irish and I'm proud to be Irish. But I'm Kurdish too, and I never forget it. Kurdish blood with an Irish heart. I went back to Iraq and Kurdistan this year to make a film documentary of my family's story and my own journey. People said, is it safe there? Will you be okay? And I said, 
Do you know how big Iraq is? How diverse and open? Do you know about Kurdistan, the Kurds and our history? This is my chance to show some of that history and our culture. The next time you go to one of your local Kurdish barbers, you might be able to chat about our music and our way of life. Our struggle for recognition as a sovereign people what makes us unique as much as the same as every other people who share an identity, a language, a way of being. Making the film was quite a journey in every sense. The Eltash refugee camp where my family spent many years is long gone, like it never existed. But there's plenty of refugee camps still, far too many, and a deep sadness around all of them. There are millions of Kurdish refugees. That's a lot of displacement and a lot of suffering. We went to the site of the Halabja massacre, the Iraqi army chemical attack that killed up to 5,000 Kurdish civilians in March 1988 in the closing days of Iran-Iraq war. There's museums, but no museums, no film, a replica plane or tanks can capture or convey the terror of what happened there. Mustard gas, birds falling from the trees, people dropping like leaves. Some of the original bomb casings have been turned to flower pots at a memorial for the dead of Halabja. You can't forget it. There was happiness too in my return. I got to visit some of my father's cousins. I walked on the family ground. There was a joy of seeing a Kurdish parliament and a pro prosperous people speaking their own language. When I meet some of the other people who were in with us in the Eltash camp, Quite a few found refuge in Ireland. We often say, don't you miss your friendships the way we shared whatever we had, the way we all looked out for each other, the simplicity of things. We're all so busy now, we scarcely have time to see each other. My brother lives 10 minutes away from me and I might only see him four or five times a year. But that's life and life is life wherever you are. It's up to all of us to make time and treasure that we have. Nobody chooses to be a refugee. It's forced on you. We're all human beings who want the simple enough things. Shelter, food, security, a home, a chance to make a future, enough love to keep us going. Life can turn in a flash. I was that child refugee, blessed to find a home here. The open door, the open heart, may they never close or falter. We often say in Kurdistan we have no friends but mountains, but I have a friend called Leitrim. Here this is home, blue green mountain, ancestors bones, here the heart can heal. Restored and made whole again. In command by the ridge of the ruined tree, in the Here's a poem that features a mother and a daughter walking the dunes in Strand Hill, and they're reflecting on language, especially the first word, 
that most of us say, mum, mum, ma'am, something like that. Marum, a word we love. Marum, silver point on dune. In middenrich Shelley Valley, we yell, Marum, ampersand, gossamer. Words are jellies, our mouths warm. Words are ice flows, melting steadily. We go out on them anyhow. In high sun, Marum casts scythes, such cuts. You are falling in half moons, daughter. Fringe sickle snagging mascarid lashes I adjust only mentally. Red dots droppered, black nail varnish. Wings of moths we minute trapped last May on Inish Murray. Marum, sea mirror. Mar halm, sea grass. Marum, early word, ever binding loose sands with tough rhizomes. She sent them away to a far country to learn their grammar. They hadn't been gone but a very short This poem is called Broken Wings and it's for Muhammad Saif Khan. We set to sea, the wind is strong, the safest port is always far away from home. Our children know the smoke of war, they know hunger, thirst, the rattle at the door. I kiss your hand, we say goodbye, no time to waste, no time to cry. Our names are washed up on the shore. Remember Mary Ellen Joyce. Remember Noor. On broken wings we rise and fall, and some of us will not see land at all. We rise and fall on broken wings. We hope for light to guide us in. Will there be refuge for our boat, an open door, an open heart, or will we meet the walls of hate with dogs to drive us wounded from your gate? We bless the good, we leave the rest, we nail our hope upon the mast. Look in our eyes, what do you see? The burning light of your own history. The wind is strong, we set to sea, the safest port is far away. I kiss your hand, we say goodbye. 
no time to waste, no time to cry. Our names are written on the shore, Ilan, Mary, Jesus, and Noor. On broken wings, we'll rise again and soar up high above the walls of pain. We'll rise again on broken wing and scatter seeds to plant the spring. Totally different tone, uh, but from this same place. Um, I'm sure many of you know the wonder of Crayons just down the street and uh, how great a night there can be uh, with music and song and dancing and chat and all the rest. And uh, Liam is uh, such a great host and talker and uh, I've had many great nights there. And uh, <laughs> he told me this story one night and I just had to turn it into a poem. How could one not? Um, but it's, you know, it, it's Liam crying really that I credit for this, uh, but I gave it a title. Beckett on a Boring. Two men going home this night, one points to the sky. The sun, he says. The moon, says the other. No, the sun, the moon. The sun, the moon, the effin' sun, no, the feckin' moon, moon, sun, sun, moon. And they lay into each other and tumble into the ditch, fighting and flailing. Another man comes by on his bike, stops, looks down at them, and they see him and pounce and pull him in. Point up, sun or moon, that is more like a threat than a question. Oh, Jesus, lads, he says, I wouldn't know. Sure, I'm not from around here. And that was a special programme from the Iron Mountain Festival recorded at the dock, Carrick and Shannon in County Leitrim last weekend. The scripts were Creative Blooming by Brian Layden, Looking for Gauls in Gallia Narbonensis by Mary Byrne, Kurdish Blood, Irish Heart was by Zach Moradi, Marum, a poem by Alice Lyons, and two poems by Vincent Woods, Broken Wings and Beckett on a Boreen. The music was Dragonflies, sung by Eleanor Shanley with Garadice, that's Dave Sheridan, John McCartan and Porrick McGovern, with special guest Tom Morrow on fiddle. 
Aval de la Ribiera, an Occitan traditional song sung by Zoe Basha with Alton O'Brien. Sanctuary, sung by Eleanor Shanley with Garadice and Tom Morrow. Three Little Babes, an Appalachian traditional song performed by Zoe and Alton. And finally, a set of reels from Garadice and Tom Morrow. And there'll be more from that event on Sunday Miscellany over the coming weeks. Now, a couple of books you may be interested in. Brian Layden's new novel, Love These Days, has just been published by Lepus Print. And Life Begins in Leitrim by Zach Moradi with Niall Kelly is published by Gill Books. Sound supervision on this morning's programme was by Kieran Dunn and Liam Mullen. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can find out more about it and other RTE arts and culture programmes on the website rte.ie slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, just go to the RTE radio app. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.